I'm Brand. I'm the senior pastor here at Berean Community Church. We're glad you're here to worship with us. And uh, Tim, you give me a new wrinkle to think about about fireworks and worship. I, I don't know. Just an interesting thought. But uh, we've been going through uh, Psalm 145, and if you have your Bibles, you might want to crack your Bible open. But here's the, the uh, challenging thing. If you were commissioned to write a psalm, a song about the greatness of our God, where would you begin? How does the finite contain the infinite, right? You may look around at creation and yet, and the majesty and the wonder of it, but yet God is so much bigger than the creation and He is not a God that just wound up creation and let it go, but He's intimately involved in that creation. Perhaps you might catalog a, a list of his attributes, and that would probably be true and right, but God is more than just a list of attributes for us to mentally contemplate. Perhaps you would even look to your own personal experience with God, which would be right and true, and yet God is not limited to your own personal experience. God is big enough to engage everyone in every circumstance. And so what framework do you use? Well, as if you were with us when we first started this uh, this sermon, it's actually two weeks ago. If you want to catch the first half of it, you can get it online. Um, but David, a man who certainly would write many psalms to talk about the wonder of creation, catalog God's attributes, and express in his own words his own experience of relationship with God. He chooses he chooses to use the building blocks of language this time. This psalm, as you heard previously, is an acrostic psalm. That means that every verse starts with a Hebrew character in the Hebrew alphabet. And it starts from Aleph and works its way all the way through Tav. All the way through. The building blocks of language. So we're returning to this psalm, and let me read it for us one more time. This is Psalm 145, from the very beginning here. A psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. And every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another, and they tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all the people may know your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom 
and your dominion endures for endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. And he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. But the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Let me pray for us and then we'll get into this wonderful song. Indeed, Lord, we are spurred by these inspired words. These words that you penned through David by your Holy Spirit. So help us today to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, we know it, it doesn't fully contain you. But it points us in truth to who you are. So would you give us grace to respond to you in like manner? Send your Holy Spirit, open up the eyes of our hearts that we may indeed worship you in spirit and in truth and ignite our hearts, Lord, to worship you with joy and great pleasure. Because apart from you, Lord, we have no good thing. Lord Jesus, I pray this in your precious name. Amen. Well, again, at the very outset of this psalm, David makes it very clear that the purpose of this psalm is God's praise. To give Him glory. It's the word we call doxology. Glory words, if you will. And each verse, as I said, starts with a Hebrew character. However, that does not mean each verse is a point unto itself. They build together. And let me just kind of review where we've been, and then we'll continue on. In verses 1 and 2, we are praising God, who is the King forever. In verse 3, we praise God, who is great beyond our understanding. In verses 4 through 7, we praise God whom each generation will praise and commend to one another. In verses 8 through 10, we praise God who cares for His creation. In verses 11 through 13a, we praise God who ushers in His kingdom. And then the second half of 13b, Praise God who is faithful and loving. Now, in some English Bibles, it doesn't have that second half of 13, or what I've called 13b, which says, the Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. It's interesting, if you look in your Bible, there are 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, and yet there are only 21 verses. Somewhere along the line in what we call the Masoretic text, 
this got lost except in one copy. But God is faithful. He's faithful to His Word. And this was captured in what we call the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It's also captured in the Syriac and also one copy of the Masoretic text. So God was faithful. And that word faithful is the Hebrew word emet, which means that God is true, He's faithful, He is reliable. And it's a good place to start as we look at the second half of this passage. Because God is the God who does what He says He's going to do. God is the God who does what He says He's going to do. If He is not, then we are wasting our time, folks. We are wasting our time. We are trusting in His promises what He says He's going to do. He asks us to put our full faith in Him. In fact, the Scripture says that without faith, it's impossible to please God because any man, any woman that comes to Him must believe that He exists, that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. We're going to be talking about that next week. As we look at the author of, of, not the author of faith, but the founder of faith, that is Father Abraham. Scripture says he believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. He is the God who does what he says. But this fidelity is also coupled with his love. Look at the second half of this verse. See, he is not only faithful to his promises, but he is loving toward all he has made. And that's the Hebrew word chesed, which is God's covenant love. A love that's not dependent upon us being lovely or lovable, but on the fact that he loves us upon his character. It's just as Romans 5.8 says, that God demonstrated his own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were rebelling against Him, Christ died for us. He came to seek us out with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These two concepts, this emet and chesed, are found all throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the Psalms. Did you notice that song we sang during um, our operatory? Your love, O Lord, your chesed, Lord, reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness, your emet, stretches to the skies. That's Psalm 57, verse 10. It's all over the Scripture, especially in the Psalms and the Proverbs. We have a God who is faithful. He is faithful in His love. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because things around us may change, Circumstances may change, but He does not. We may stumble, we may fall, but He does not and He will not. He is faithful. He keeps His word and He is loving. His character directs that faithfulness. Let's go on to verse 14. And folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I feel like I'm just hitting the highlights. I almost feel badly because I feel like there's so much here. I just I can't get it all in, but I'm going to try, as I said, Hit the highlights. But verse 14, The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. Praise the Lord who upholds the fallen. Perhaps you've heard this phrase. I've fallen, 
and I can't get up. There you go. You know it. It's the human condition before God. You see, there are moments in our lives where we know we are stuck. We know that we can't get out. Whether we've placed ourselves in that position by our foolishness or our own sin, or that of somebody else, or just overwhelming circumstances. It is a place where circumstances are beyond our control and you are humble. And you're in a place where the only place you can look is up. The only place you can look is up. But here's the good news. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He says that three times in His Word. If it's your own sin that put you there, you can repent. You can be forgiven. You can be restored. And if it's other tough circumstances or something someone else did, this is an opportunity to depend upon God. An opportunity to build your faith. An opportunity to humble yourself. As the Scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. As it says in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. But if we insist on doing it our own way, if we insist on, no God, I got this, I can pull myself out, He just might let you. He just might let you struggle there until we figure out that you can't. And God is not looking for us to grovel, folks. He's not looking for us to grovel, but He wants us to realize our need and realize His willingness to pick us up. Are you stuck? Then look to Him. Look to Him. Let's go on to verse 15. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. Praise God who provides. Praise God who provides. You know, every good thing that you have is from Him. Every good thing you have is from Him. Oftentimes, hard work is rewarded, but you know what? Hard work sometimes is abused and exploited by those in charge. There's no guarantee that if you work hard, you'll always be rewarded. Hard work may be rewarded, but it's still the Lord who provides. And I think this gives us some perspective. Because this community tends to be a hard-working community. Perspective that my job is not my life. If I lose my job, I still have my life. My paycheck is not my life. God is my life. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's part of my testimony. When I was a young pastor, I was working at a church. They asked me to be their interim worship pastor. I was successful enough that they had me do it for a year and a half. But at the, at the, at the end of the day, they wanted a real musician. And I'd kind of taken one for the team here. And they released me. They released me. And I was driving a school bus for a year and a half. I had a master degree in divinity. 
I'm driving a school bus. Like, my pay was cut in half. And I was humbled by that. But you know what God showed me within that time? <laughs> showed me two things. This is the bonus. The ministry is a privilege, not a right. But the other thing is that God could take care of me. Because there are times, I mean, we just had our first, our first child, Bailey was just born, she was a baby. We could barely, we couldn't even pay for our own health care. We had to, she was the only one who was insured. But you know what? God met us every step of the way. And there were days where we didn't know where the groceries were going to come from, and all of a sudden we'd open our door and groceries would be in our back step. And God showed me in that moment that God could take care of me. Because I come out here and I preach that a lot, don't I? It has to be true for me that it's going to be true for you. But that's what He showed me. He could provide. And that my wealth is not my life. My wealth is not my life. You know, when the children of Israel left Egypt, here's a funny thing. They walked out of Egypt very materially rich. They plundered Egypt. They had, they had gold, silver, precious jewels, material. And then where were they? They were out in the desert. And you know what? There's no Walmart in the desert. There's no high V. There's no Target. And you can't eat silver or gold. God had to provide for them. He had to provide for them in a place where all their wealth did them no good. And He showed them that He is their life. He is their life. Again, that doesn't mean that in our everyday life we don't work hard, that we're lazy or passive, but it means that we look to Him. And we pursue His kingdom. That's why Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. God moves us from, I don't know how this is going to happen, to praise God from whom all blessings flow. He doesn't always give us what we want, but He always gives us what we need. He provides, and He is our life. Verse 17, The Lord is righteous, in all his ways, and faithful in all he does. Praise God who is righteous in all that he does. In a world that may question motives, judgment of others, we don't need to do that with the Lord God above. Because he always does what is right, he always does what is best, and it's a reason to praise him. Back to even verse 7. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. And by the way, did you notice that that word faithfulness is also in this verse? That emet, it's part of the package of him doing what is right. Okay, I just gave you the Sunday school answer, right? God is righteous in what he does. But aren't there times when we look at what's happening in this world or even around us and we wonder, why does God allow such terrible things to happen? And folks, that, that question is not easily answered. But here are two things we need to keep in mind. Number one, He knows everything and He knows the end from the beginning. Oftentimes, God is looking to accomplish something greater, something better, something more righteous than what we can immediately see. Example A is the cross of Christ Himself. 
I'm sure his, his disciples were going, what is God doing here? The most innocent man that ever lived, who never did anything wrong, is falsely accused in trumped up kangaroo court, thrown on a cross. It is a travesty of justice on the human level. What was God up to? It was a man who was innocent enough to pay the penalty of our guilt. A man who was great enough to take that wrath upon himself, to serve as our substitute, to pay our penalty, and ultimately conquer death and give us his righteousness. See, God was being just and being the justifier in the cross. This is what the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 23, verse 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this, listen, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just. He's punishing sin and the one who justifies Jesus paying the penalty justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is righteous. Right in all he does. And folks, there are moments where we are going to wonder we are going to wonder. And we, at those moments, maybe we need to look to the cross. Remember what he has done. But also keep this in mind. He's not done. He is not done writing his story. He's not done writing his righteous story in you and in me. So in those moments where you feel like justice is not being served, God says, I'm not done. Wait. I will make everything right. I will make everything new. Verse 18. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. He hears their cry and saves them. Praise God who answers our call. Are you ever amazed that God answers our prayers to begin with? I mean, He knows everything about us. The good, the bad, the ugly. <laughs> I don't know about you. I have, I have issues of answering my children when I think I'm getting attitude from them. Right? You want that? How about saying please? He knows everything about us. Nothing is hidden from Him. Our actions, our words, our thoughts, our attitudes, nothing is hidden from Him. That's why David says, to all who call upon Him in truth. God wants us to come to Him openly and honestly. Not trying to pull over the wool over His eyes by having some fine-sounding words. How many of you are old enough to remember Leave it to Beaver? 
Remember a guy named Eddie Haskell? And he'd always come with these smooth words to Junior Ward Cleaver, and everybody knew he was just putting on the you-know-what. I mean, it was just pathetic. I think some of us approach God like that, kind of an Eddie Haskell-esque manner. If I say the right words, if I kind of portray something, God goes, no, hey, I know you. I know your heart. Stop it. Stop it. Come to me openly and honestly. And know who you are before a holy God. Know that your sin causes you to fall short. Know your need for Christ. Know your need for Him and His Holy Spirit day in and day out. Not just one moment, but every moment of the day. We don't have what it takes in ourselves. But Jesus does. There's a reason why Jesus starts out His Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's recognizing your own spiritual poverty. But turning from that poverty and turning to Christ's riches that He has for us. A verse I often quote during communion. I may do it today, but I'm going to quote it right now. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, God made Him, talking about Jesus Christ, who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange of the Gospel. We come in our sin to God and say, God, I have blown it. And God takes the penalty that should be rightfully on us, and He puts it on His Son who went to the cross for us. And then He turns around for those of us who put our faith in Jesus and gives us Christ's righteousness. What an amazing thing. That's why it is good news. That's why it is the Gospel. There are a myriad of reasons to call out on His name. From forgiveness to finances, from wisdom to weariness, from crisis to being Christ-like. But it involves, it involves trafficking in the truth. Acknowledging who we are and who He truly is. The one to whom we're going to have to give account for our lives. And that's why verse 19 says we should fear Him. He is the one we should fear. And He is the one whom, whose name we should call on in truth. Verse 20. The Lord watches over all who love Him. But the wicked He will destroy. Praise God for His protection and His justice. You know, I'm, a, I'm 52 years old. What? Yes. I'm 52 years old. And as I look back on my life, there are some times I probably should have died. Just out of stupid foolishness. Some traffic decisions I made. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me. There was a moment when I was 14 years old. I decided that I was at my parents' house is a three-story house. I decided to lower myself out of this window kind of see how I could do that, you know, and I was using a very thin hemp rope and the thing broke about six feet down. I sheared off a branch off of a tree, ended up laying flat on a, you know, a uh, 
hello. It's a shed made of, of uh, sheet metal. You know, it looked, it was like this when it started. It was like this when it ended, right? I mean, I should have been dead a few times. But God, in His grace, He protected me. He protected me from my own foolish, foolishness. But the truth of the matter is, one day I will die. Unless Jesus returns, I will die. And I don't know what day that is. Any of you read about a, a, a young man named Mitchell Henry this week? If you don't know about Mitchell, he was an up-and-coming NFL player. Played tight end for Green Bay. Played for the Ravens last year for a while. He's 24 years old, and he died of leukemia. It's kind of one of those tragic stories. Here's this young, strapping man, you know, you think, is the, is the vision of health. And yet he died of, of leukemia. I think he only had like five months to live. They just found out about this, I believe, at the beginning of the year. Wow. But you know what? He's protected. Because he put his faith in Jesus Christ. As I was reading the story, as I was reading the, the, I guess the tweets that went out about him. His protection was in the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. And even if a man dies, yet shall he live. Because Jesus has conquered the grave. There is protection from harm beyond this life. And by the way, that's why it says so often in the Psalms, His love endures forever. It doesn't stop on this side of heaven. It endures forever. That is good news. On the other hand, on the second half of this verse though, here it says, the wicked he will destroy. Who are the wicked? Who are the wicked? By our standards, it's usually people who are murderers, terrorists, rapists, really mean and bad people. By God's standards, though, it's us. It's us when we choose to do our own thing. This is what the Apostle Paul says, quoting various Psalms. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear before their eyes. Now as I read this to you and you kind of look at your own life, you kind of go, wait a minute, Pastor, that seems extreme, that seems harsh. And maybe that's not the way you're operating every day, moment to moment. But here's the thing we need to understand. Number one, God judges every attitude as well as every action. And number two, God does not grade on the curve. 
You see, if we have one wrong action, one wicked thought, one harsh word, it's considered wickedness. We're acting wickedly. In Scripture it says if you break one part of His law, you've broken the whole thing. You see, the standard is not the world around us. The standard is the perfect living God Himself. But again, this is where the, the bad news becomes the good news. God does not abandon us in our inability to keep His righteous standard. Rather, He met that standard by sending Jesus Christ Himself. Again, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And a little later, in this same letter, the next chapter, listen, talking about wickedness, he says, however, the man who does not work, that is, try and work out their own um, salvation or righteousness before God, but trust God, listen, who justifies the wicked. He justifies the wicked. Their faith is credited as righteousness. See, when we put our faith in Jesus, it's not about what I can do, it's about what He has done. And that, again, is good news. When we put our faith in Christ, we come under His protection from His judgment, and we experience salvation, eternal life, and so many other benefits. But those who will not put their faith in Christ, God will judge. They will judge because they've decided to trust in their own ability, their own righteousness. And it falls woefully short. There's a reason why God says He opposes the proud. Because their ability falls woefully short. And think about this even. Another reason why He judges them is because they spurn God's salvation. God's solution, which is His own Son. I'm telling you what, folks, if I sent one of my children to be the salvation of the world, and someone says, no, I don't, I don't think so, that would be very, very insulting, especially if you're the living and holy God Almighty. Well, we're going to finish up here at verse 21. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. Praise God who shall be worshipped by creation forever. And this ending is rather fitting. The psalm begins with forever praise and it ends with it. Look at verse 1. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. It begins with forever praise and it ends with it. All things begin with Him and all things end with Him. He is the A to Z. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is, in Hebrew, the Aleph to Tav. And all creation will give Him praise forever. Forever is a long time, isn't it? From a heavenly standpoint, this is a, a vision we see in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, each of the four living creatures had six wings and covered its eyes all around under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, 
Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And from a return or the end of time standpoint, Philippians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where history is heading. In eternity, praising the living God. Here's what's hard for us sometimes, because we're asking the question, well, what are we going to do in heaven? What's it going to be like? And we're, we're fearful. We're fearful. Because we're wondering, will I be able to camp? Will I be able to hunt? Will I be able to do whatever we think we want to do? I think sometimes we have valued the gifts that God gives us on this earth that we have lost finding the full pleasure in the giver. We have our eyes more on the blessing than the blesser. And God is the one who is intended to fill our hearts. But one of the things He wants to do on this side of heaven is to teach us to enjoy Him because it's so much greater than what this world has to offer. Folks, there's a reason why my life verse is Psalm 16.2. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord, and apart from You I have no good thing. Because I found that only He can fully satisfy my longings. And I've experienced a lot of good things in this earth. I'm grateful for them. But only Christ can fill that fully. Only the Lord God can do that. This is what C.S. Lewis says in his a sermon called The Weight of Glory. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant, an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God is trying to prepare us for an eternity of enjoying Him. It will be beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. So today I commend this psalm to you. I pray that you might go back and review it. But today we've looked at a God who is worthy of our praise, worthy of our awe, worthy of our enjoyment because He is faithful and He is loving. He upholds the fallen. He's worthy of our praise because He provides, because He is righteous in all that He does. And He answers our call. We call on Him in truth. And He is our protection. And we'll bring about His justice. And we'll be worshipped forever. That's where we're headed. We're going to turn this time now to a moment of praise also. Because as I said, our God entered time in the person of Jesus Christ to live a life that we couldn't live and then to go to the cross and pay a penalty we couldn't pay and ultimately conquer a foe in death that we couldn't conquer. But we always enter this time of communion or the Lord's Supper thoughtfully. And let me just let you know, if if you're a visitor here, 
we practice what's called open communion. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're welcome at this table. It's not my table. It's not the table of the Brian Community Church. It's the table of the Lord. He welcomes you here. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, just pass the things, the elements on down the row, and no one will think anything of it. We have some children in the in the uh, audience. Kids, if mom and dad say yes, they know you put your faith in Jesus. That's great. If no, we'll have a conversation later. But we want to come again thoughtfully, realizing that it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. So let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remembering the instruction that the Apostle Paul gives us. He starts out saying, well, at the end of this passage, he says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. 